Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out. And I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression, a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now, to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have John Hare. He's an explorer, a conservationist, and an author. Uh, We're going to talk about his work with uh, camels. So, John, thanks for coming. Thank you very much for the invitation. Yeah, no problem. If you would, tell me a bit about your background and how you ended up working with camels. Well, many, many years ago, I was working in Africa and um, working for the government, and I I had to travel in an area. This was in West Africa, near Lake Chad, which is just south of the Sahara. And uh, there were no roads in those days, or very few. And so in my 20s, I was doing work in Africa and using camels as my transport. And then many years later, um, I was working for the United Nations Environment Programme, and... uh, I wasn't particularly enjoying the job I was doing, but I met a man in Moscow when the Soviet Union was collapsing, and I asked him what he did. And he said he led the joint Russian-Mongolian expeditions into the Gobi Desert. And I looked at him in the eye, and as I said, I wasn't happy with the job I was doing. And I said, I would do anything to come with you. And now the Soviet Union was collapsing, and Russia had no money for anything. And the ruble was, I think, about 550 rubles to the dollar. And he said, get me some foreign exchange and you can come. And I said, how much? And he said, $2,000. I said, done. So I got the $2,000 and uh, I said, well, now I'm ready to come on your expedition. And he said, are you a scientist? And I said, no, but I've had a background of really going into deserts and, and being in the bush. Mm-hmm. And he said, Professor Sokolov went like that. And I said, well, I'm sorry. His name was Peter Gunin. I said, sorry, Peter, but I've got you the money. Then he went through my CV and he learned about the time I was in Africa traveling with camels. And he said, that's it. 
come as the wild camel expert. Yeah. Well, I wasn't, I wasn't an expert, but that's how I got on the expedition. Well, that's pretty cool. What was it like back in the day? You said in your 20s you were using camels for transport. So how often were you, were you riding them and, and what was it like to work with them? Well, like to work with them. I mean, once you start working with camels, you, you get to know how they are and, and they're, they're nothing like working with horses. They're very, very different. Psychology is different. But, yeah, well, um, we've seen them in um, like the Renaissance Festival. You can ride them around in a circle and I've seen them. You know, my, my daughters have like ridden one, but we never hung out with them. So I just wonder what, what are they like when you spend time with them? Well, during the course of my life, I've done thousands of miles on the backs of camels, either dromedary, single hump camels or Bactrian, double hump camels. And uh, what was it like? I mean, like anything you learn, once I got used to it and got to understand the psychology of the camel. Yeah, I mean, it, it just became second nature. Yeah, you said they're very different to horses. Like, what, what are some of the things in particular about them that are interesting? Well, I, I, can tell, I can tell you one thing in particular. If the horse is with other horses and something happens, the horse is spooked. All the horses will charge off with their tails in the air and uh, they'll get spooked. Now, if you're traveling with camels and let us say the load slips off a camel's back, crash, bang, hits the ground. The camel involved will, of course, spook and it will dance around. But the other camels will just look at it and say, what, what's up with him? What's the matter with him? Unlike horses who'd all charge away into the distance. So there are big differences like that. So are they just to themselves? Are they, I mean, would you say camels are intelligent? Are they social animals? Like, how are they? Well, I, I would say that the camel actually is is more, in, uh, I mean, horsey people don't, don't like hearing this, but it's they're more intelligent than horses. They're very individual. They will travel until they drop, but once they drop, they'll never get up again. They have the remarkable ability, as I'm sure your listeners know, to go without water when they're traveling for nearly two weeks. And um, they're very, very different to working with horses. You, you know, I've, I've also been with horses a lot of my life. Very different, and and but you've got to understand the mindset and the and the psychology of the camel. Well, what is that? But I hope you'll I hope you'll let me talk about the wild camel because that's a very special animal. Sure, we can jump ahead to that. I was just you know the way you talk about camels, it sounds intriguing, but I just wonder what specifics when you say they're more intelligent and it's very different to work with them, and you have to know their psychology. Like, what are a few facets of that? And then let's talk about the wild camel. Yeah, uh, well, I mean, a lot of people who don't know camels, think that they're smelly, they kick, they spit, and bite. And some of them do. But they usually do it when they've been provoked or you're trying to tighten the strap around their stomach and it's hurting them. And then they will kick out and bite. But then so will some horses. I think I learned from the Tuareg, who are the tribe who, nomadic people who inhabit the Sahara, that you have... You never know quite what side of the bed the camel got out of that morning. In other words, just to give you an illustration, you can go and see your camel and tickle it behind the ear and it will go all soppy and, and, and uh, you know, then you can jump on its back and it'll be in a very good humor. The next day you go and tickle it by the ear and it'll try to bite you. So they're unpredictable like that. But I think, well, horses have it too. I mean, but they're incredibly willing to to go mile after mile after mile in the most extreme conditions. 
So if you um, ride camels or you care for them, I guess you as the human have to watch out for them, make sure that they've had water because the camel will just go and go until it's dead, it sounds like. Yeah, I mean, it's it's not just water. I, I mean, it's much more important that they get fed food every day. And uh, when we were on our expeditions, we used to carry either maize, you know, sweet corn, uh, corn, dried corn, or other types of feeding, feeding stuff. Um, if you're working with camels, they've got to be fed every day. They can go for a long time without water. And a lot of people don't know, but the hump of the camel does not contain water. It contains fat. And it's the fat that, you know, they, they absorb into their body and gives them energy until the fat in the hump has all been used up. Have you ever been able to, like, literally have a camel as a pet? Or are they too wild to ever really domesticate? Have you ever seen someone that really the camel is like their friend or their pet? I wouldn't use the word pet, but I have ridden remarkable camels. And the most remarkable one was in the Gobi Desert. And um, I was at the back of the caravan and I dropped my whip, which hit the ground with a bang. And um, immediately the camel stopped. It had realized that I had dropped something and it sat down as they do. And I was able to get off, walk back, pick up the whip, walk back again and get on the camel. And I was really concerned it might have run off because I would have had a job then to attract the attention of the rest of the caravan, which was moving quite quickly. But that was a most remarkable camel. And and you get camels which have a remarkable intelligence. And that, you know, I, I if, if, I, if I was able to buy a camel, but I couldn't, it didn't make sense. Uh, that was a camel I would have bought because it was just remarkable. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click on support us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. You said you started working with a, a guy named Peter. You came along as the camel expert to go into the Gobi Desert. What was that like, you know, just for a minute or two? That was the first expedition. And we had an American scientist who's well-known, a naturalist called George Schaller. And uh, it was, a, it was a, a, at the time when the Russians were leaving Mongolia and they weren't very popular. And George taught me a lot about the wild camel. And the wild camel, just to tell your listeners, the domestic double-humped camel in Mongolia is called the Bactrian camel. The single hump camel is called the dromedary camel. And it's called the Bactrian because at the time of Alexander the Great, about 150 BC, there wasn't an Afghanistan as there is today. There were various countries. And one of the countries was called Bactrian, Bactria. And it was the soldiers of Alexander who saw the double hump camel and never seen one before. And that's how it acquired its name as the Bactrian camel. Now, up until very recently, up until 2008, the double-humped camel in the wild was thought to be the wild Bactrian. 
and there's about 600 in China and about 400 in Mongolia. And that makes them, in the terms of the naturalists, critically endangered. In other words, they're on the edge of extinction. And I was so impressed when I went with Peter Gunin and the Russians into the Gobi in Mongolia. I went not really going as a camel man, but as somebody who wanted to go into the Gobi with a scientific team. But then when I learned more and more about the camel, and especially the camel in China, and I'll explain that in a moment, I became very, very impressed with this animal. And in the old days, both the herd in Mongolia and the herd in China, they could merge. But in the 1920s, China built a railroad and a uh, motor road and cut the herd in two. It's a very timid animal. And so that left the 600 in China and the 400 odd in Mongolia. But in China, they live and survive in an area which has no fresh water. And therefore, China chose it as a nuclear test site. And your listeners should be aware that the camel in, 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 uh, in China, sorry, 438 atmospheric nuclear explosions, of which over half were more powerful than the bomb or the bombs dropped on Hiroshima at the end of the Second World War. That's horrible. I was going to ask you if anyone preys on camels and why are their habitats a problem, but at least I understand this one. Well, yeah, exactly. And man, man had forced the camels into this very, very inhospitable habitat. And the camels, not by preference, but by necessity, had adapted to drinking this salt water. And this is the second point which made me such a supporter of the wild camel. That salt water has a higher content of salt than seawater. And yet the camel has adapted to drinking it. And I often ask people when I'm giving talks, is there any relationship between the fact it can ingest this salt water and the fact that it survived these massive nuclear tests with the subsequent radiation? And I think it's a huge area for scientific study because it might be of immense benefit to mankind. I don't know. Why did the Chinese government not seem to care at all about the camels? What are the different types of uses that different societies have had for them? I guess transport, what what else? If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You're talking about the domestic camel now. The domesticated wild camels? No, they've never been domesticated. And I must just say this, that I started our charity the Wild Camel Protection Foundation in uh, 1997. So tomorrow, next year is our 25th anniversary. And in 2008, and I've made many, many, many expeditions now into the Gobi, both in China and in Mongolia. And I sent samples of hair and bone and skin and blood to the Veterinary University in Vienna And after five years of genetic testing, they issued a paper to say that this was a separate species of camel. It was not the wild Bactrian, as as I explained earlier, was previously thought, but it was a separate species. And this really made the work of my charitable foundation very, very important. What's different about these camels when you look at them and interact with them? Uh, Well, the humps are much smaller. And they are very, they go up in a little pinnacle. 
the Mongolians in their language call the wild camel Huftagai, and Huftagai translates as flathead. So the Mongolians had recognized that the shape of the skull of the wild camel was different to the Bactrian camel. And uh, so it has been proven that it has a different shaped skull. Its humps are smaller. And I don't know whether your listeners have, have seen Bactrian, domestic Bactrian camels, but when the humps are empty of fat, they flop, usually on either side of the camel. But the wild camel, the humps never flop. And they're much leaner and, and slightly smaller than the Bactrian. But the shape of the skull is the, is the big difference. Have you tried to uh, establish a sanctuary for them or a breeding program to make more of them? What, what have Absolutely. You been doing? And in Mongolia, which I'll go back to now, we established in 2004 a breeding center for the wild camel. And I managed to get hold of eight animals, which the Mongolians had caught. And today we have 38. The Mongolian government gave our foundation 150 acres or 60 hectares of land and we constructed a breeding center but now we've got too many camels uh, in, in that center so the government had given me another bit of land but a long way away uh, so that it can't get disease from one center to another and we are in the process we've raised a lot of the funding and we have an agreement with with Prague Zoo where Prague Zoo in the Czech Republic has a very long history of dealing with endangered species and particularly uh, large mammals. And um, we have now managed to get the funding to set up a second breeding center. Uh, COVID has interrupted the building of it, but we hope that next year we will be able to start building the second center. Difficult to breed them? Do they breed in captivity or is this the is the land big enough where it doesn't feel like no it's not it's it's not difficult but what will be what is interesting another interesting fact that the desert where they live is extremely cold in the winter minus goes up to minus 45 celsius and in summer it can get up to 50 celsius and the camels breed at the coldest time of year which is usually january december january february and i was out there 3 years ago at the breeding center and it was minus 35. And that's when it's really cold. That's when the dominant male camel comes into must, as it's called. And, and it's not difficult for him to, to mate the females, no. Have you, so have you spent a lot of time in this, uh, this allocated plot of land and hanging out with the camels and observing them in the wild? And if so, what, like, what interesting things have you seen? Of course I have. I mean, over the years, we set it up in 2004. And I must have been to Mongolia at least... 25, 30 times. I don't know how many times. I should say that in China, uh, we set up an, a reserve and one of the biggest reserves in the world called the Lopnor Wild Camel Nature Reserve. And it is now run by the Chinese. But I managed to get money from the World Bank. And uh, we set that up in 2003. Uh, I got $650,000 from the World Bank. And um, that is one of the largest nature reserves in the world to protect 600 camels. So my foundation's achievements have been setting up the reserve in China and establishing the wild camel breeding centers in Mongolia. At the breeding center, one has a lot of time to study 
the camel and its habits. But it's slightly not really a true picture because the wild camel in the wild is what they call a migratory species. And it will go in China, for example, from water point. And you, your listeners know it's a salt water point. And when they've eaten all the vegetation, they can travel up to 100 and 150 miles to another water point. So, And then they stay there for a few days or weeks and eat the vegetation and then move on in a big, big sort of like a map. Uh, they, they, they follow this pattern. But of course, if they're at a breeding center, they can't do that. So they're kept under slightly unnatural conditions. So what are you trying to figure out about the wild camels? You know, you can successfully breed them. You've observed their movements and found they can live off salt water, et cetera. We're releasing them back into the desert to try and increase the numbers. And we've had are two they, releases. Uh, we've had two releases so far. Do you tag them with a like a GPS yes. tag or something? And, yes, okay. we, we um they go when they're released, they have a collar and uh, a satellite collar which we can monitor. I've got some amazing, amazing uh, pictures of, of, of the movement of the camels when they've been released. Uh, they're they're tagged, they're ear tagged, and they're microchipped, so we can follow the progress of individual camels. Yes. Have you tagged uh, other camels in the wild and then just re-released them immediately to see where they go and what they do differently? I haven't. No, we haven't. But now that the Chinese are running their reserve in China, they they have done that in China, but I haven't been involved because we've handed over the reserve in China to the Chinese. But have you been able, you said you had some amazing data or graphs or pictures of, you know, the ones you've released. So what, what have you noticed about their movements? Like how far do they travel? Well, what, what, is they interesting, what is interesting is that, let, let us say, for example, we release eight camels. The most interesting thing is that they don't stay in a group together. They tend to go off individually. Certainly the males do. And um, that was quite a surprise because you would have thought they would stick together as a herd. But they they wander huge distances. The only other predator that, apart from man, is um, the wolf. And uh, the wolf population, both in China and Mongolia, is increasing. And so they are vulnerable to wolves. Okay. What do you see as the necessary future of your work with the camels? What what needs to be done at this point? There are two things really. One is because so few people are aware of the wild camel. And as I think I've tried to explain to you, the amazing ability to drink salt water and to withstand the nuclear tests, that really captured my imagination. This is a remarkable creature. So what we're trying to do is to bring, and we're succeeding actually, bring to the attention of as wide a possible uh, area of people who, because everybody knows the rhino and the elephant and these other very, very, and the panda, of course, in China. But very few people know that the wild camel is the eighth most endangered large mammal in the world and has this remarkable ability, uh, as I've already explained. So part of it is is like education, awareness raising. But we have, I mean, we we have a remarkable following on our social media now. And uh, David Attenborough, who I'm sure your listeners have heard of, and his series of nature programs in January, they featured the wild camel and our work. So that brought the wild camel to attention to a lot of people. Hmm. And Jane Goodall, the chimpanzees lady and, and roots is our life patron. And she supports us in, in a very big way and has done for 25 years. Oh, cool. So I think our public awareness is growing uh, considerably, actually. 
And that's very important because of the people, if the general public don't, that's why I'm giving, you know, talking to you because I, I like to try to spread the word about the wild camel as widely as possible. And if your listeners go to wildcamels, with an S on the end, dot com, they will come to our website and they'll see many, 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 many interesting things there and Jane Goodall talking about the wild camel. So I hope your listeners will be encouraged to to go to the website, wildcamels.com. Yeah. yeah, I think they're really interesting. I guess the last question is, do they do they have any interesting vocalizations that are different from other camels? Do you mean, you mean calls or... Yeah, the camels seem to go, you know, they... they no, 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 there's, there's, no, there's nothing different to what a domestic camel will, will noise it'll make. Okay. But of course, I said to you earlier that they're a very timid animal, and, and I'm sure they, that there, there's nothing different. Uh, they make the same sort of noises of irritation or pleasure, just like the domestic camel, yeah. Ones that would be in the U.S., I mean, is it legal for anyone to own one? You know, I'm, not one? Sure about, I'm not sure about your laws. But of course, I'm in touch with one person in particular who who, who has a camel ranch in the States. And, um, you know, he, he's obviously on top of your regulations. But I, I'm, I'm not. A, I mean, and I'm also in, there. Are, there are eight zoos in, in the in the US who, who support us. And they've all got Bactrian camels, a double hump domestic camel. But I don't know what the regulations are. I would have thought yeah. that the regulations were tighter on bringing them in from outside rather than owning them if they were born and bred within the States. But I, I just don't know. It's not my field, really. Yeah, I understand. Well, very good. Thank you for coming on, John. It's really interesting. And, you know, you deal in a very unusual world of, uh, of camels that 99% of people know nothing about. So I'm glad you came on and brought this to people's attention. It's very interesting. Good. Well, thank you for the invitation. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.